Good morning. Uh, welcome to those that are viewing us uh, at home and joining in from your living rooms and uh, your side porches and uh, on your phones and computers. Uh, this is weird. It's less than ideal, but we're thankful um, that we can come to you uh, in this way. We can do the best we can to try to be together. Um, welcome to those of you in the room uh, who uh, are here with us. This is a joy to be with several dozen of you um, worshiping together um, as we try to uh, understand who we are and who the Lord is together. So um, if you've been out, uh, or you've definitely been out because we've had two snow Sundays in a row, ice Sundays in a row, where we uh, canceled in-person services. And so the live stream you may or may not have uh, joined in with, but we are now on our fourth week of studying the book of First Thessalonians. And so as a, as a brief reminder of some context of, of what we're studying and, and what we're looking at, uh, the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, was actually the first letter that Paul wrote. The Apostle Paul who wrote it was the first epistle, this, this letter to a church uh, that there are many of in the New Testament, is the first one that Paul wrote. Uh, Thessalonica was this it city. It was this uh, kind of hustling, bustling city. It was almost the, the kind of secondary capital of the entire Roman Empire. Uh, it wasn't, but it was a major city. It, it was a huge political player, a huge economic player. Um, it, it brought a lot to the table for the Roman Empire, this, this capital of the province it was in, in northern Greece. Um, it was an it city, and, and Paul was a, was a strategic church planner. He, he wanted to go to an it city, and the way that Paul would plant churches is he would go to these, these cities and he would go to the synagogues where the, the Jewish remnant would, would gather on a weekly basis and he would go to the synagogues and he would preach the gospel to them. And he would say, hey, I know I am a Jew also. I'm a Pharisee. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a religious leader in the Jewish uh, community. I, I have, I have been, uh, it has been revealed to me that Jesus is our Messiah. Our Messiah has come. The long way to Messiah has come. So Paul does that in Thessalonica. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Jesus the Messiah, to this synagogue in Thessalonica. And he does it for about a month of Sundays. It's not where the phrase comes from, but he does that uh, for about a month in, in Thessalonica. And there's some converts. There's some young believers who go, I think this Paul guy's right. I think Jesus actually did raise from the dead. And I think this actually is our Messiah. So now he's split the Jewish community in two. Because half the people in the synagogue don't like what Paul just said. But the other half really likes what he said. And so there's this tension in these Jewish people who uh, are not converts. They run Paul out of town. They say, you got to get out of here, dude. They threaten his life. They drag these new converts into the streets, and they, and they, they charge them with crimes against the emperor in, in Thessalonica. It's a bad situation. Paul has been run out of town, but he's got this young church plant of these new young converts in Thessalonica, and he's saying, I, I am so worried about those people that I've just been forced to leave, but I've got to know how they're doing. I've got to know how, how they've been. Are they still believing in Jesus? Are they mad at me because of the problems that I've caused by telling them about Jesus for their, for their social life and for their cultural life? Are they okay? I can't even go see them. I can't even go check on them. So in this, in this time after he's kicked out of town, Paul sends his young assistant pastor, Timothy. We call him Daryl in real life here, but his young assistant pastor, Timothy, he sends Timothy to go check on the church at Thessalonica because Timothy wasn't wanted uh, in, in Thessalonica. He wasn't a hated man in Thessalonica. So Timothy goes to check on this young church plant. And when Timothy comes back to Paul, Paul writes this letter. So the book of 1 Thessalonians is a response to the report that Timothy brings back to Paul, and the report was, was good. 
Paul, they're doing great. Paul, you, they, they love Jesus still. Paul, they're, they're walking in faith. Paul, they, they, love, they, they love this Jesus that you told them about. It's, it's, it's okay in Thessalonica. So from this place of deep joy and deep gratitude, Paul writes this letter. And he's got some things he wants to correct and encourage them in, but mostly he's just writing to them because he's so glad at what he's heard from Timothy about how they're doing. Okay, so that's the context. Everybody good with that? Can we nod at home? Can I get a thumb up at home? Good. Um, that's the context for the letter, but in particular, you'll see how that context plays into our little section of chapter three today. Paul's response in letter form to Timothy's report about the young church in Thessalonica. Got it? So we're gonna be in 1 Thessalonians chapter three, verses six through 13. This should be on the screen at home and in the room here. It says, Paul says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For your sake before our God as we pray. Oh, sorry, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may God our Father, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we dive into this? Jesus, we are more desperate for you than we even know how to admit, um, and as we come to your word, we, we don't even know what to ask uh, other than would you reveal yourself to us. We've got, um, we've got sin, we've got pain, we've got confusion, we've got apathy, and we've got addiction, and we've got um, plenty of ways that we know we need you, but sometimes we don't even know how to name that um, in the specific way, but you do. And so would, would, you, would you not hide your face from us? Would you send your Holy Spirit to this place? And even though we can't see, feel, or touch your Holy Spirit, would we, would we know that we have been with him because we will leave here having um, seen Jesus? Would you show yourself to us now, we pray, through your word? And would you um, forgive the one who you've called to teach your word this, this morning, his sins, for they are many? We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna start our study of this uh, little seven-verse passage uh, actually by looking at something at the end of this passage. Um, The end of this passage, Paul has just written to the Thessalonian church, and then he tells the church what he's praying for them. And what he prays for them is actually a helpful kind of kickstarter of what this whole section is about. So, So look with me at the end when he's telling them, starting in verse 11, what he's praying for them. He says, Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, saying like, we want to come see you. May he direct our way to you. Is there a way we can come see you? And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Increase and abound in love. That's what what Paul just asked the Lord to do 
for the Thessalonian church. And the image here is this increase and abound in love is the image if you turn on your faucet and had a bowl in the sink underneath the faucet. As the bowl filled up, if you never turned the faucet off, the water would just keep spilling out. The water would just keep pouring over. It's an overflow. This, this water that's going in, the, the thing that's injecting itself into the Thessalonians, Paul's saying, I want, it to, I want the love of Jesus to be so poured into you that when you get bumped into, when, it gets, when, when life shakes you, that what pours out of you, what bumps out of you is the very love that's pouring into you. I want it to overflow over the edges. I want it to increase and abound where you can't even contain it. I so want the love of Jesus to go so deep in you and fill you up that it just keeps pouring in and everyone around you knows what's spilling out of you is the love of Jesus. My prayer for you is that you, Thessalonian church, would learn to be great lovers, deep lovers of each other and of the world around you. And if you read Paul anywhere in the New Testament, any of his letters, he wrote about 13 of them, any of them in, in, the, in the New Testament, Paul seems to be obsessed with love. He's obsessed with love and the idea of the churches that he writes to learning how to love people. If you watched our January series that uh, Dave Burden and, and, and Jonathan Nash and DeCarlos, our Napier pastor, and Dave Burden, our Creve Hall pastor, preached four weeks um, on 1 Corinthians 13, which is Paul's magnum opus on love. It's read at weddings, which is a terrible idea because it has nothing to do with marital love, but good for you if you did that. I don't hate you. I love you. Uh, but it's, it's, this, it's this diatribe on, on the importance and the centrality of, of biblical love. And Paul, it's not the only place he talks about it. That's kind of the most condensed place is 1 Corinthians 13. But he talks about it everywhere. You can't read Paul and not see that Paul is obsessed. Everywhere he writes, he writes about the importance and the, and the, the vitality of a church learning how to love each other and love the world around them. So why is Paul so concerned with love? Why would he pray for this Thessalonian church that, hey, my prayer for you is that you would overflow, that you would learn, you would increase and abound in your love for one another and for the world? Why does he care about love? What's love got to do with it, said Tina Turner. So one, one commentator, one scholar I read this week uh, said this when talking about the importance of love for Paul. Is that loveless Christianity is an oxymoron and that a gospel that is lacking in love is a heresy. And true Christian maturity is measured by the character of one's love, not the complexity of one's theology. Let me read that again because he says it better than I could. Loveless Christianity is an oxymoron. And a gospel that is lacking in love is a heresy. True Christian maturity is measured by the character of one's love, not by the complexity of one's theology. Church, Midtown, do you want to be a people that is marked and is known by your love for the people around you? Is that a desire of yours? Do you want to be a great lover of your kids? Do you want to be a great lover of your spouse? Do you want to be a great lover of your parents? Do you want to be a great lover of your roommates and your neighbors and your coworkers? Do you, I'm, not, I'm not talking about like what, what test grade are you getting on loving perfectly. I'm talking about does any part of you want to learn how to be a deep lover that would overflow with love for the people around them? Do you have a desire to be a great, deep overflowing kind of lover with the people in your world, that when something bumps into you, your, your tank is so full of love that what spills out of you, even if you're not even trying, is love. Because the Bible is clear that the way that the world will know who you belong to 
will be evidenced by how you love the people in your world. And so Paul, one of the most influential people of all time, Paul was obsessed with teaching people how to love the world around them and how to love the relationships, how to love in the relationships that they were in. Paul knows the importance of teaching his churches the art and the skill and the depth of how to love others truly, sincerely, and deeply. Paul, he, he writes about it all, he doesn't stop writing about it. So how did he do it? How did Paul, he says this is what I'm praying for you, that you would, you would increase and abound, you would overflow with love for one another. This is the mark of being a Christian, how we will love. How did Paul try to implement to these churches that he wrote to, or Thessalonian, this Thessalonian church, how did he try to get them, teach them, and, and implore them to be a great, deep, sincere lover of people? Well, Paul showed them how to love by loving them. He, he says many times, watch, watch me, right? Watch me, watch me. Like, watch me. Watch what I'm doing and watch how, the love that I'm giving to you and you will learn how to be a, a, a great lover. In fact, he taught them how to be a lover by loving them. He said, hey, if you want to learn about love, just let me love you and you will learn what it's like to be a great lover. Paul made these people the object of his affections. He's, he's basically saying, I want you to increase and abound in love and I want you to do it the way that I'm doing it to you. So what are the markers of Paul's deep love for this Thessalonian church? What can we learn about love by studying what Paul is doing and what he's saying to these people because he loves them? If we want to learn about love, let's watch Paul. Let's see how Paul is loving these people. What do we see Paul doing here? How do we see Paul loving them here? How can we learn about love by studying Paul's love for these people? When I was in college, came home uh, from college with some roommates and some friends one weekend, um, and my parents were going through some old stuff. They were, going, they were looking through the attic or something, and they, they pulled out these old shoeboxes full of these love letters that my dad had written my mom while they were dating long distance. They only had the ones that my dad wrote my mom, which means I guess my dad threw all his out, or my mom never wrote back, one of the two. But, they, but we had just boxes full of letters that my dad had written to my mom. And, and part of it is like, well, hey, that was the, they were Florida and Texas, like it was truly long distance, and, and they, they couldn't text or tweet or even email. This was like the only correspondence unless you wanted to pay big money to, to call long distance, Right. And so this was, this was their correspondence for a long time about, about uh, their relationship while they were dating and getting engaged. This, this was it. And here's what, here's what was fascinating about it. I wasn't reading on these love letters how much my dad loved me. I didn't exist yet. I was reading about how much my dad loved my mom. And while reading these letters, I was learning about love by just kind of peeking into these love letters between two people that weren't me. And what I learned by watching my dad or reading my dad's love letters to my mom was he, he was like obsessed with her. <laughs> like he couldn't stop thinking about her. He was talking about all the things he did throughout the day and how, he was, how she was on his mind and how he couldn't, he couldn't wait to be with her again. And let me tell you about this story. And let me, let me tell you what happened at work this day. And I just want you to know what's going on with me because I can't wait to be with you. And I was like, whoa, dad. Like, you, are you okay, bro? Like, you, you, like, you need a life, dude. Like, you, you're, all you're doing is thinking about this woman. All you're doing is, is, is dreaming about her and can't waiting to see her. I was learning about love by watching and reading how much my dad loved my mom. And in a very similar way, it's what's going on in this passage. 
we're, we're learning about love not because Paul's writing about how much he loves us. We're learning about love by learning how much Paul and how Paul loved this church. And I know it's easy to come to a biblical text where you feel like, I don't know what this is about, and I don't know the context, and what is this, what is this trying to show me, and what's it in here teaching me? And, and some of those questions about context and all that are very important, but I want to remove all that, and I just want you to imagine all the, these seven verses is just a glimpse into a love letter from Paul to this church that he adores. And we're not reading about how much Paul loves us, but we're going to learn about love and, and, and what it means to be a great deep lover by reading about how much Paul loved these people. We're like peering into this love letter. And it's got these elements of like a fatherly love for children, but it really is more intimate than that. Paul, Paul is, is the, the ethos of these words, what just drips off of every word in this paragraph that we read. You, you get the sense, Paul is obsessed with these people. Like he, he, is, he, he adores them. He can't stop thinking about them. Like his whole life, it seems like, is revolving around these people. It's so intense. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. When he says that he longs to see them and be with them, that word where he says, I long to be with you, that word longing is a Greek word, which is the, the language that Paul wrote in. It's a Greek word, epithemia, which is a word that's literally translated over-desire, like epi-desire, like an epi-pen. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a over-the-top, out-of-bounds, like almost inappropriate. Like Paul's saying, I have like an out-of-bounds, off-the-scale amount of desire to come see you. That's how deep the longing is. It's an epi-desire. It's an over-desire. In fact, almost every other single time that word epithemia is used in the New Testament by Paul or by other writers in the New Testament, it's bad. It's a bad thing. It's translated lust in many other places, where he's like, where he's like calling out sin and calling people to, to stop lusting and to stop worshiping idols because you've got an epithemia for something that's wrong and will destroy you. Like epithemia many, many times is wrong. But for Paul here, it's good that, that, that we would read this. You could read this and Paul saying, I'm lusting after you, and it's a good thing. Paul, in this context, his epithemia is a celebrated thing, this over-the-top longing, this abundance of desire, this epi-desire, this over-the-top desire to see these people and be with them and know what's going on. Like my dad to my mom in the letters, like, I think about you all day, and I just, I can't wait to come be with you. I can't wait for you to come back home, and I can't, I can't wait for us to be together again. Paul adores these people, and his epithemia to see them and be with them is a good thing. But let's keep going, because it actually gets worse or better, depending on how you look at it. it get, it's, like, it's more intense than even an epithemia desire. Look at what he says in verse 8. And, and this, this, this struck me this week and paused me when thinking about love. Look, look at what he says in verse 8. He says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. He's basically saying to them, all right, I sent Timothy to you. I got a word back from Timothy, and I heard that you're standing fast in the Lord. I heard you're doing well. I'm okay to live now. For now I live knowing that you're doing okay. I so love you. I'm okay to live now because you're doing okay. So wait, 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 just a minute. Because if you said that line to any counselor in America, they would say, hey, Paul, you're probably codependent. 
Like that, that's not healthy, that you've so tied your joy to how these people are doing. You, you seem so, like, hey dude, th- this, is, this is like crossing a line. How can Paul tie his joy up with these people so much and yet the Bible would say Paul is, is radically healthy, not radically unhealthy with this? How can the Apostle Paul make a statement like this and not be codependent? There's a lot of us in here who are codependent, um, and by a lot of us, I mean all of us, and if your first thought is, is I'm not, I'm not codependent, you are codependent. <laughs> like if you don't think you're prone to be codependent, you are codependent. And, and codependency is this, is this dynamic in a relationship where you are so inextricably tied up with a relationship that you are unhealthily relying on or dependent on the other person thinking a certain way about their relationship or thinking a certain way about you that you unhealthily depend on that relationship in a way that is unhealthy. So we can be dependent unhealthily on relationships emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, where we are not okay if that other person is not okay with us. That's what it means to be codependent. You're not okay with me, and so therefore I'm not okay. That's being too dependent on the relationship. So we depend on what other people think about us and think about our relationship, and we become obsessed with it. We can do this with our boss. What does my boss think about me? I have to make sure that he or she knows that, I, that I'm committed and that, that I'm here to serve and that I'm here to be a good, good team member. We can be this way with our kids. Gosh, we can be this way with our kids. I'll change that pronoun. I can be this way with my kids. I just had to discipline my kids. Are they okay, are they okay with me? Are they mad at me? Are they, gonna, are they gonna be a rebel for the rest of their life because of this one five-minute interaction? I need, to go make sure, I need to make sure that they're okay now. We can be this way with our spouse, with, with conflict, inner conflict, where we go, okay, we just had some blow up, or we just had some you know, World War III conversation, or even like, not World War III, just some intense conversation, and are we okay? Is this conflict, conflict means that everything's bad, so I, I need to make sure we're okay. We can be this way with our parents, when you've gotta have hard conversations with your parents as an adult now, and you gotta go, oh gosh, I, just, I need my mom or my dad to be proud of me, I need to make sure that, they're, that they think a certain way about me, I, I need to know that they know that I'm okay with them and that I'm not, we can be this way with our roommates. We can be this way with our siblings, especially like addict siblings. This happens a lot in family dynamics where like the addict sibling or the one who's not doing okay, everybody revolves their life around the sibling who's not doing okay. And I need them to know that I'm not going anywhere. I need them to know that I'm committed to them and I'll do anything for them. And I need to we can do this way this, with people that we have crushes on. Like I'm so dependent on how the person I really want to like me back thinks of me that I will, I will like become codependent on them. And so, those are just a few examples. Codependent people are always exhausted. And codependent people are never at peace. They can't be. You can't be at peace if you need the relationship to be a certain way or feel a certain way or need them to think about you a certain way because that treadmill never stops. You can never do enough to make sure that they know that everything's okay to where you will finally be at peace with the relationship and with what they think about the relationship. Codependent people are restless and drained because the people and the relationships that they need to be okay aren't okay. And so if you're codependent, you're exhausted. Codependent people can never rest. And codependent people 
warm their little self-esteem egos around the little fire of, of that person giving them approval. They warm their egos around that person approving of them, and that fire may seem to warm you for a little bit, like, oh, they like me, everything's okay, and then that fire seems to die, and so you got to throw another log on the fire to make sure that it stays warm. And that fire can never burn long enough or never burn big enough for you to quit putting logs on the fire because you're codependent on that relationship approving of you and letting you feel a certain way. And because of that fire never being big enough or burning long enough, codependent people are never doing well. But Paul is doing great. Paul's not codependent. Paul's not restless. Paul's restful. But out of his restful place, out of his freeing place, he is committed to these people to tie himself up with their good in such a way that he's actually loving them. He's not codependent on them. And here's where I want to camp for just a minute. Here's what gets so tricky is that there's a like razor thin line that many times you can't see about yourself, only other people can see about you. There's a razor thin line between love and codependency. There's this there's this really thin veil between actions that you would justify as, well, I'm only doing that because I love them, when really you're doing it because you're codependent on them. And, 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 there's so many people that in the name of love, they say, well, I'm just trying to love them, and because I'm trying to love them, I'm not going to become codependent on them. And so we refuse to actually step into loving people for fear or defense of, I don't want to be codependent on them. And the other side, like I said, is true too. We so justify our, our codependent actions with people that, that we, we justify it because we're just saying, I'm just loving them. I'm just trying to love them. I'll give you a subtle example from my life. Subtle. Will not give you an, one to easily pick out because I don't trust you. Um, and I'm not codependent on you. But here's, the, here, here's a very subtle version of that. Because here's what happens. So much of what we do in our relationships, we, people would have no idea that we're codependent on them and that it may just feel like we're loving them, but really we need them to approve of us in a certain way. We need the relationship to feel a certain way. So here's one for me. How often do we, how, how often do I, wrap up a hard conversation that I've just had with someone in my life that, that I really do love or want to love? How hard do I wrap up a hard conversation by doing this? Yeah, but we're good, right? Like, I need you to know that I, I'm, I'm not going anywhere, that, I, that we're, still, we're, still, we're still cool, right? How often do we wrap up tense conversations of conflict? How often do we wrap up arguments by making sure we end in a place of me feeling like we're good? Now, that can be, you understand, that idea of like, hey, at the end of a conversation that's hard and tense, that can be a really loving thing to wrap up and go, hey, I know this was hard, I'm not going anywhere. I know this is hard, I know this was intense, but I love you and I'm committed to you. That can be a loving thing. It could also be a really codependent thing for me to go, hey, this was hard, this was, this was a tense conversation, but I'm not okay if we're not okay, and so I need you to know that we're okay so that you let me know you still approve of me, when really it's my insecurity, not my love, it's my insecurity that's making me do this with you. But if I do that with you, if I try to wrap up a, a tense conversation with you by letting you know that I'm still committed, you would be none the wiser or we, on whether or not that is a loving thing or whether that is a codependent thing. Does that make sense? And so here's what's hard. The recipients of your functional or dysfunctional love, your love or your codependency, may have no idea which version or what's driving you to do that. 
So here's the difference. Here's how you can know and here's how you can ask yourself this very reflective question. Here's the difference between actions of codependency and actions of love. Is that codependent people are dependent on other people's approval and they are willing to sacrifice anything in order to get that approval. Whereas loving people are willing to sacrifice for the sake of other people's good, not for the sake of other people's approval. See, one thing is driven by, hey, I'm gonna come love you and sacrifice for you so that you give me something. The other is, I'm gonna come love you and sacrifice for you, and it doesn't even matter how you respond. I'm only doing this for your good. And my commitment to you is not dependent on your response. My commitment to you is because I love you. Codependent people sacrifice in order to get approval. Loving people sacrifice for other people's good. So the great starter question when you walk into situations and relationships and interactions in your world, here's the question. Are you sacrificing for their approval in the sake of y'all's relationship? Are you sacrificing for their good and for their healing? Because that's exactly what Paul is doing here. We're going to see this in just a second. I'm going to show you. Paul is so committed to these people, but his commitment to these people is not dependent on them. It's only a commitment to them for their good. He's sacrificing for their sake, not for their approval. That's how we know Paul is loving them and not codependent on them. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. He says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may come and see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That baby is giving me lots of amens. Yes, sing it, girl. I love it. You, it's like perfectly timed, too. Thank you. You've, she must be a Christian. Um, sorry, at home, we've got an amener in the room. Um, here, here's what Paul just said to them. Paul just said, I can't wait to come and be with you so that I can supply what is lacking in your faith. Translation, Paul just said, I can't wait to come and be with you to tell you about all of your shortcomings. And I can't wait to come and be with you and tell you about your shortcomings and tell you about how you're failing and tell you about how you're not whole yet and tell you about where you're weak. I can't wait to come and do that and give of myself in order to heal that. When Paul says to them, you don't have it all together, you have weaknesses, you, your faith is not complete, you have not arrived yet, codependent people can't say that. But loving people can. You can actually say really hard things that may even, may even wound in order to heal if you actually love people. You can't say hard things to people that you're codependent on. If you need someone else's approval, you cannot talk to them the way that Paul just talked to the Thessalonian church. But if you love them, you can. And listen to what he says. He says, I so care about you. I'm so committed to you. I can't wait. I'm praying to God that I could come be with you face to face so that I could give of myself to you something that you need from me. Paul is so concerned with sacrificing himself for their good, he's not concerned with their approval, he's concerned with their healing. He isn't dependent on what they think about him, he's committed to them, even at great cost to himself. He's willing to sacrifice for their good, not willing to sacrifice for their approval. So, Paul is not dependent on them, or their response, or their approval. 
But he is able in freedom and in love to tie himself to them and be so committed to them in such a way that he would be so wrapped up in how they're doing that he would say, I'm so committed to you, my joy will be complete when I can come give more of myself to you. He's so committed to them in a way that frees him to not in any way be dependent on them and their approval. He's committed to them for their sake not committed to them so that he can get something back from them. That's what love is. Love is a commitment to people in a way that in no way makes you dependent on them or their response. And if you've ever tried to love someone and you understand this paradigm, you will understand that almost everything that you've ever called love is really about getting something from that. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you, I, I've got, I've got, countless examples of this. Marriage is a really easy place. But if you were to ask me when I serve my wife in the, way, in the ways that make her feel very loved and very served and very much like we're on a team and we're doing this together, how often am I doing that just so she will say to me, hey, thank you, I, I needed that from you. And how much of it is a commitment to her that doesn't depend or even need her response? That's what love is, though. It's a commitment to them, not so that they will change and give you something, but a commitment to people that you love that frees you from not being dependent on them in any way or their approval. So does Paul love these people? Yes. Does he lustfully long to be with them? Yes. Is he codependent on them? No. How's that possible? How is it possible for Paul to be freely committed to them, so much so that you may look at it and go, Paul, that's, un- that's unhealthy, bro. Like, you're obsessed with these people. How can he be so deeply committed to them and not in any way be dependent on them? It's because he longs for them, but he's dependent on the Lord. Such a subtle little nuance, such a subtle little reality in the difference between codependency and love. He deeply cares for them, but he's dependent on the Lord. He's not dependent on them. Will you throw the, the passage back up for one second? We're gonna start in verse nine, and you don't have to pay attention to every word. I want you just to kinda of let this, like, just hear these words, and you tell me when we read these last four verses of the passage who you think Paul's dependent on. You think he's dependent on the Thessalonians, or you think he's dependent on the church? Starting in verse nine. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Who does Paul sound dependent on? Does he sound dependent on their response? Does he sound dependent on their approval of him and what they think about him? Who do you think is the main focus of Paul's approval seeking? Who has Paul completely submitted himself to in this relationship? In four verses, in four verses that we just read, there are nine references to Paul's dependence on the Lord for this relationship. Nine. It's like more than two per verse. It's a good average. 
He's saying, thank you to the Lord. I'm praying to God for you. I'm asking the Lord to increase your love and that he would establish you guys. Paul's longing and love of the Thessalonians did not direct him to be dependent on them. His longing and love of the Thessalonians directed him to be dependent on the Lord for them. It's a great litmus test for your relationships, your marriage, your siblings, your children, your parents, your roommates, your significant other. Has your relationship with someone made you more dependent on the Lord or more dependent on them? If it's made you in any way more dependent on them, you have probably spent a little bit of time in the codependent camp. Now, you may be depending on the Lord on Thursday for, for the sake of your relationship, and on Friday you can fall into codependency. This is not like a you arrive and then it never happens again. This is the litmus test. This, this is the how do I know when I've begun to subtly creep into the codependent side and the, and the not loving side? Because codependency is not love. It's, it's loving someone for your sake, not loving them for their sake. Has your relationship with someone made you more dependent on the Lord for their sake or more dependent on them for your sake? Loving of people, biblically speaking, this is the biblical idea of love. Loving people is meant to make me more committed to them and less dependent on them. Loving people in the biblical sense is meant to make me all the more committed to them and less dependent on them where I actually grow in my ability to love people from such a free place where I'm now not dependent on their response to my love. That my love doesn't stop when I don't get the response that I want. And I don't, I don't stay on the treadmill of just trying to make them like me and make them approve of me and let, have them let me know that we're okay and this, this is okay. I'm actually free to just love them and stay committed to loving them even if they don't respond in the way that I want them to. And if that's gonna happen, if Midtown is going to become a place where we are known for being radical, deep lovers of people, not codependent people, but deep lovers of people, here's maybe a question you're asking. Is that if my love of people is ultimately meant to make me less dependent on them and their approval and make me more dependent on the Lord, here's maybe a question you're asking, and here's how we're going to close. What makes the Lord so dependable? That if, if my loving of people is actually meant to make me more dependent on the Lord, not dependent on them, that's, that's a terrifying place. If you want to like pull back those layers and like lose that, that outer layer of how you've just grown to be in codependent relationships and become very numb to that idea, if you want to peel that off, it's going to be really, really painful because you're going to have to start saying no to a lot of things. And you're going to be in this place where you feel like you're floating and you feel like you have no idea what's normal anymore or how, how this is supposed to function. And you're going to need to depend on something. If you can't depend on their approval of you, if you can't depend on y'all's relationship feeling a certain way, then you're going to need to depend on something. And Paul would look at you and say, the Lord's a great place to start. So it's a very dependable place to depend on the Lord instead of depending on other people's approval. So what makes the Lord so dependable? How did Paul know that the Lord was so dependable when it came to loving people? Remember that word that is used about Paul's love of the Thessalonian church? Epithemia, over-desire, over-the-top longing and desire that is nearly obsessive with the object of its desire. Remember I told you that nearly every other single place in the New Testament that that word epithemia is used, it's used in an unhealthy sense. It's a sinful way to over-desire something. 
There's one other place that's used, not in here, talking about Paul's love for the Thessalonians. There's actually a place where that word is used when it's talking about the Lord's love of his people, the Lord's love of you. Book of James, written by the brother of Jesus, chapter 4, verse 5, we're told this, that the Lord jealously longs for the spirit inside of his people. The Lord jealously longs, the Lord epithemias for the heart of his people. It's the same word, epithemia, to talk about the Lord's extravagant, obsessive love and commitment of his people and to his people. And that may even sound like it's too hard to comprehend that you go, wait, 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 the Lord has like an obsessive epithemia towards me? The Lord has an epithemia for his people's hearts. Would you, would, you just, would you pause for a moment? You may even need to close your eyes and ponder this for a moment. When you think about the Lord's countenance towards you, when you think about the Lord's love of you, when you think about how the Lord feels about you, when you think about the Lord's stance as he faces you, would you dare to believe that the Lord has an epithemia love towards you? Would you risk believing that the Lord is overly committed to you and his commitment to you doesn't depend on you. His commitment to you, his epithemia towards you, doesn't even depend on your response to it. Because that's what real healthy epithemia love does. He's saying, I adore you, like Paul does to these people. And it's such a love from a free place that the Lord is so free, he's not like, oh my gosh, I hope Elliot responds to this, and if he doesn't respond to my love, then I may, I may not know what to do with myself. He's actually saying, I don't even need Elliot to respond to my love in a perfect way. My love is still there for him. My commitment is so committed. My commitment is so rock solid that my love for my people is a jealous lover is saying, I'm going to keep coming after you, and it doesn't even depend on your response to it. That at the center of the Lord's heart is an epithemia desire to be with you. And I can assure you, in case you were wondering, the Lord is not codependent. But he is a jealous lover. And his love makes him all the more committed to you, but not dependent on you. That's what love is. A commitment to people that is not dependent on their response to it. And because love, like we saw in Paul, because true biblical love is displayed by a willingness to sacrifice for someone else's good, not for someone else's approval, then you have the ultimate expression of sacrificial love in the person of Jesus. That Jesus would say what led him to Calvary, what led him to the cross, was an over-desire in the healthiest way to be committed and sacrifice himself for your good, not for your approval. There was not an ounce of Jesus that gave himself for you in order to have your approval, but because his sacrifice was driven by true love, it means his sacrifice was driven by a deep desire to give of himself for your good, not for your approval. And when you and I are loved that way, we, we, we sang about it at the, at the beginning of the service, oh love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. You have a love that will not let you go. 
And when you decide to take your weary soul and rest it in an epithemia love, in a commitment love that is obsessed with you in the healthiest way, when you taste the intensity of that love, guess what, you'll, guess what you'll, you and I will begin to be able to do? When you know you're that loved by Jesus, you won't need other people's approval to let you know that you're okay. Because the love of Jesus is what's dependable and unchanging, not the, the little fire that will make you feel okay for a little bit that you've got to keep putting logs on. And when you and I are dependent on the Lord and his love, not codependent on people and their approval, we actually are free now. So now I, don't, I don't need your approval. I actually want to sacrifice myself for your good. I want to stay committed to you for your sake. That's why the Lord's dependable, because he is the great lover of our souls that will not let us go. And that's the dependable love of God that freed Paul to love these people with that same intensity and to pray for them and to pine for them and to long for them and to want to be with them and to know that they're doing okay, not because he wouldn't be okay if they weren't, but because he wanted to sacrifice for them with all that intensity for their sake. God, would you make your love free us in that way too, we pray. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, um, we're codependent in ways that we don't even realize. We're, it's become like oxygen to us. We, we, we need relationships to feel a certain way and to be a certain way. And we have become um, less than human in doing so. This, this, this is anti-love, is to be that dependent on people in our relationships. So would you... Would you lead us to the places where we do that, that we would see them and that we would bring that in repentance to your kindness? Would we bring our codependency to your love? And would your love melt us and make us lovers like you, we pray. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.